listening to the Northside Christian Church Sermon Podcast. These teachings are recorded at our weekly Sunday morning gatherings in Springfield, Missouri. For more about our church, service times, and how to connect, visit northsidechristianchurch.net. Someone once said that the weapon of culture is proximity. I want everybody to say that with me. It's going to be up on the screen here so you can see that. But I want you to say that with me. The weapon of culture is proximity. The natural gravitational pull is to become like the culture that's around you. This is why over and over again, we see God telling his Israelite people as they were going into the promised land, as they were driving out the Canaanites that were in that land, he told them, do not intermarry with the people and the nations that you encounter. Do not intermarry with them. Now, why would he say this? Is God against interracial marriage? Is God against diversity in families and relationships? No, that's not it at all. In fact, God promotes diversity. God promotes that. He created that. It's, it's the end result of what heaven will look like. So no, this isn't about God not wanting people to have that created diversity. What is God against? What is he so against? Wickedness. God is against wickedness. He's against people who turn away from him to pursue their evil and sinful desires. And God knew that if his people, the Israelite people, were to intermarry with people who did not love him, did not serve him, they were following all of their pantheon of gods, that the Israelites too would be tempted to do that because the weapon of culture is proximity. Now, I think God can use proximity as well, as we'll talk about in a minute. But what you have to understand here is in the books of Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges, which we've been reading as a church family, what we see here is when God's people came in close proximity with those nations who worshiped false gods and clung to their idols and committed those worship atrocities when they would sacrifice their babies to those gods by sacrificing them through fire in their acts of worship. When, when Israel was at risk, of embracing their practices, of becoming like them, what we realize in this moment is this was the ultimate offense to God. And here's why. God was sending the Israelites into the land of Canaan so they could prosper and grow, so that it would lead them to the place where Jesus would come as the Messiah, the anointed one, God in flesh coming to earth to save us from our sins, to be that perfect sacrifice for our sins. This, this God was preparing Israel to lead us to Jesus, to be the light to the world. This was God's plan and purpose. So he wanted to bless them. But there was something else that God was doing by sending Israel into the land of Canaan, into the promised land. What he was doing is he, he tells them, it is not because of your righteousness that you're going into this land to take it. It's because of the wickedness of the people that are there. God was using Israel to bring his justice and his punishment on evil, wicked people that had come to the ultimate degradation. And God was sending Israel in to do that. And so when Israel begins to become like the nations around them, it is the ultimate affront to God. When they lived in close proximity to that culture and they began to look like that culture, what we see is we see a, a, a nation go into degradation. 
And if you have a Bible or device today, I want you to open up to the book of Judges. Open up to the book of Judges. You know, as, as a church, we're going through this year of Bible engagement. It was funny because I was looking at my notes this morning, just reviewing it, and I realized I had, I guess I wrote Bibble, Bibble engagement. But spell check didn't catch it. I guess Bibble is a word. I, I Googled, what is Bibble? Like, that's an actual word, no red lines. It kind of got me distracted from preparing for my message today as I was reviewing it. And so I'm looking for Bibble. You just have to look it up later. There's even some, there's even some show where they called something Bibble. And so I guess it, it's, a, it's an actual word, I suppose. But I thought, isn't that ironic? Here we are in a year of Bibble engagement where we're helping people because we have Bibble illiteracy and so we're doing this, but it's kind of ironic. But anyway, uh, we're in your Bible engagement. And, and we've just basically, we finished the book of Joshua as a church. And today you're going to be reading Judges chapters 4 through 5. So we're coming into this book of Judges that spans almost 400 years, uh, from about 1380 B.C. to 1045 B.C. It begins at the end of Joshua's life. He's 110 years old, giving his final address to the Israelites when we come into the book of Judges. And at the end of Joshua, the book of Joshua 24, verse 31, we read this. It says, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him. And you're like, that's great. I mean, they, they, they were serving the Lord, which is what Joshua told them. You're going to experience all the blessings of God if you do this. They served the Lord through the lifetime of Joshua and through the elders that outlived him. But then our worst fears are realized when you get to the book of Judges. Because here's what we read in Judges chapter 2, 10 through 22. If you want to just skip to that, Judges 2, 10 through 22. It says, after that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. And they followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. And they aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asherah. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them. Just as he had sworn to them, they were in great distress. Why is this going on? Look at, we'll move fast forward. Judges chapter 3, verse 5. Judges chapter 3, verse 5 says, The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and they served the Baals and the Asherahs. This is crazy. God has called his people to be holy, set apart, show the nations who the one true God was. This is what God wanted. But instead of driving out the Canaanites and their idolatry, they become like the Canaanites. Instead of becoming like the Lord, they moved alongside these people groups and began their sinful practices. So much so, that the book of Judges is a dark book. I mean, as you start reading through this book, it is a disturbing book. It is full of wickedness, killing, evil, rape. I mean, it is what life looks like apart from God. 
And, and here's how Judges describes the times that are going on in the history of Israel at this time. Two times we're told in Judges. In Judges chapter 17, verse 6, and the very last verse of the book, Judges 21, 25, here's what it says. It says, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. The reason Judges is so dark, everybody just did as they saw fit. In fact, at least four times in the book, Judges says this, in those days, Israel had no king. It's in chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 19, chapter 21. This is what life is like when you are rulerless, when you have no authority in your life, when you don't submit and surrender your life to any kind of authority. This is what life is going to look like. God was to be their king. I mean, God was their king. And so when it says Israel had no king, no, they had one. They just rejected him. They turned away from him. They refused to listen. Everyone did as they saw fit. That phrase can also mean this. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's how some translations will say it. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's how they lived. They saw something, desired it, took it. That's how they live life. And honestly, if you look at Scripture, that's a pattern, a design pattern that we see in the Bible. I mean, is that what Adam and Eve did? They saw the fruit. They desired it. Saw it was pleasing the eyes. What did they do? They took it and they ate it. You look at Abraham and Sarah. God promised them a son, but it didn't happen in their timeline. And they were well along in years. What did they do? They saw Hagar. Oh, she'd be good to have a son with Abraham. They took her to have a son. Aaron the priest... Mount Sinai, he sees that the people desire a God. He sees this what they want. And so he takes their gold and makes a golden calf to give them what they want, their heart's desire. Years later, you'll see among the Israelites that they want, they see that the other nations have a king. Oh, now they want a king, not God, but someone else. They see Saul, they desire Saul. It wasn't God's pick. It was their eyes that desired him. And so they take him as king. And what happens in every single one of these instances? It leads to pain and destruction and curses and hardship in the lives of people. Because when you do as you see fit, when you do what's right in your own eyes, it leads to ruin. It leads to destruction as a society, as a nation, as people, as individuals. It always ends up in disaster. Every single time. Look through history. Which is why a hundred years before we get to the book of Judges, Moses was telling his people not to do what was right in their own eyes. In fact, he said it this way in Deuteronomy 6.18. He says, do what is right and good in the Lord's sight. Do what is good and right in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you. And you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord has promised on oath to your ancestors. When you do what's right... In the Lord's eyes, it leads to blessing in your life. When you do what's right in your own eyes, it's going to lead to curses. And what we see throughout the book of Judges is people do what's right in their own eyes. Their culture is inundated with wickedness. Occasionally, you'll see a strong man or woman who rises up to lead the people out of their social and political chaos. That's the judges that come up in the book of Judges. And so for a period of time, we see these people start to return to the Lord. They start to experience some salvation. But then it repeats itself into that dysfunctional standard of living where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And throughout the book of Judges, what we see is every single judge goes from good to bad to worse. That's the progression of the judges, and that's the progression of the, what's happening in the nation. 
In fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be getting to Samson. He, he's the last judge of the judges. And, and we'll read about him in Judges chapter 13 through 16. And I think it's probably appropriate to note right here and now that Samson saw a young Philistine woman. He saw her and he told his parents, get her for me. Get her for me. And they said, isn't there a woman among our own people who would pursue the Lord, who knows the Lord, that would be good for you to have? And and here's what he says. Get her for me. She's the right one for me. And that phrase, she's the right one for me, can be translated, she is right in my eyes. In my eyes, she's right. That's how not only the people were living, it's how one of their judges was living. It's right in my eyes. I mean, that is the great lie of our culture. And that's what's sending us into degradation. Do whatever's right in your own eyes. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Follow your heart. Find your own truth. You do you. That is what our culture says. You do you, I'll do me. In fact, in 2020, during the pandemic, there was a song that came out, Jason Mraz sang it. And some of you are like, oh no, I like some of his songs. Don't, don't slam Jason Mraz. Well, not everything he writes is probably good. There was a chorus in his song, you do you, I, I'll do, I do me, I'll do me. It goes like this, you do you, I'll do me. Together we'll make harmony. Together we'll make the world go round, 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 round. You do you. I'll do me. Together we'll make harmony. Together we may dance differently, but it's all good. People who live by that philosophy, you do you, I'll do me, do not live in harmony. It doesn't even exist. I mean, that is a figment of your imagination. That we're going to do it differently, but somehow it's all good. No, it's not all good. It's just not. We live in a highly individualistic, self-centered social reality. Our our basis for morality, right and wrong, it's self-centered. It's what I want, what I will, what I desire. That determines what's good for me. It's an increasingly individualistic, secular culture where we no longer believe there's any fixed moral standard that we need to obey. And so it is a you-do-you kind of culture. You be the judge. You determine right from wrong, good from bad, desirable and undesirable. You do this. And this is the culture we live in, which means what? The weapon of culture is what? Proximity. Proverbs 26, 12 says, Do you see a person wise in their own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for them. When we start to think that our own eyes determines what's right and wrong, we're in trouble. The idea that everyone should get to define for themselves what is right and true, it's a recipe for disorder, disaster. It's the definition of moral anarchy. It's the defining principle of our postmodern culture, a value system of postmodernism, where truth is regarded as a matter of personal perspective. People today don't believe anything can be known and settled with certainty. And so we're just living in complete chaos and uncertainty and we can't even figure out what makes sense. In our culture, there's gender confusion. One time we wanted to help people through that, but now we live in a culture where there's major gender confusion. 
live in a culture now where even in competition right now, we have biological males dominating women's sports because the NCAA has ruled that a biological male who identifies as a woman can compete in those sports, destroying all of women's progress that has been happening. It's, it's a wreck. So much confusion out there. We're in a culture that celebrates sexual sin and immorality as progress. It leads to abuse of all kinds. We see a culture where there's oppression of the poor. We're taking advantage of the vulnerable. There's racism. There's, there's bigotry. It's just, it's just unraveling all around us. Even right here in our own county, where in Springfield area, where we saw the abuse of children increase by 18% from 2020 to 2021. As if we weren't already leading in that category. We grew by 18%. When it comes to abuse, people doing what's right in their own eyes. And when you open up the book of Judges, you see stuff like that. You see a guy who sacrifices his own daughter in Judges 11. There's brutal rape in Judges 19. There's starvation in Judges 6. There's idolatry and a fraudulent religious system that we'll talk about in Judges 17. There's a man refusing to take responsibility and lead in Judges 4. There's civil war in Judges 20. I mean, the state of perplexity and fear and dysfunction within Israel throughout that time is pervading. So much so it affects their economy, their, their agricultural system. They relied on everything. Everything at all times was in a state of flux and disorientation. And the end result was this. You couldn't tell the Israelites from the Canaanites. You couldn't tell the difference. In Judges chapters 1 through 3, they're like living with the Canaanites. But then Judges 3 through 21, they're living like the Canaanites. And what you realize in this moment is without complete commitment to do what is right in God's eyes, not my own, you will drift into the full embrace of the culture around you. That's the natural gravitational pull. When you're in proximity, you've got to have full commitment to do what is right in God's eyes. And Israel just didn't have that commitment. They drifted away from the true God to doing what's right in their own eyes. And the reasons were, were these. Number one, they, they didn't drive the Canaanites out of the land and their idol worship out of the land like God told them to. They didn't. Instead, oftentimes they pressed them into forced labor. They made slaves like the Israelites, like they had been in Egypt. They were in close proximity without commitment to holiness, which just made them look like the Canaanites. Number two, they didn't pass on their faith to the next generation. Heartbreaking and appalling that a generation grew up without knowing the Lord and knowing what he had done for them. It's just mind-boggling. And then number three, they, they broke the word of God. God made a covenant with his people. There were 10 of his words, his covenants he shared with them. And the first one was, have no other God before me. And the second was, do not make for yourself an idol. Don't do this. But when we get to Judges chapter 17 through 21, it's an epilogue. Meaning it's just story and example after example of, of illustrating Israel's complete apostasy. The rejection and rebellion of God. And it shows the social degradation that characterized that period of the judges. Especially a story I'll get into in a couple weeks. That originally I put into this sermon but ran out of time. But it's what life looks like when God's not your king. When you do as you see fit. And so we'll, we'll look at one example from that section of scripture from Judges 17 to 18. It's, it's Micah, the, the, the Ephraimite, who was promoting idolatry. And what's crazy about this is his name Micah means who is like Yahweh. Who is like Yahweh. He was nothing like Yahweh. He was like the Canaanites. He built a private temple for his idols. 
He instituted an an unlawful priesthood to help facilitate the worship of idols. I mean, mean, this is what's going on in the Israelite community. And, And here's the backstory to this. His mother had uttered a curse against the thief who had stolen 1,100 shekels of silver, which is equal to 110, 110 days wages. And she utters this curse. She's furious. Well, he was the thief. And so he's concerned about that. And so he, he comes out to his mom that, that he took the silver. And so to reward his honesty, this mother who loves her son tries to reverse the curse with a blessing over him. And so she tries to speak this blessing. And then after she does that, um, she, she paid a silversmith 200 uh, silver shekels, several thousand dollars to make some objects of worship. Micah has a carved image, which was probably of stone or wood. And then he has this other idol, which is made of silver that's been molded into an idol. He installs one of his sons to be the priest to conduct worship at his shrine that he puts together. And this is how he's going to worship. He thinks that having this Levitical priest would be better because Moses' grandson, his name's Jonathan, Moses, his grandson Jonathan, comes along into the hill country of Ephraim and Micah took him into his house and made him like a son. And then he made him a priest over his shrine. He thought having this Levite priest would bring greater blessing from the Lord, even though it was forbidden by God in Numbers chapter 3. All of this is just in direct disobedience to God's words. This is the kind of crazy stuff we do when we do what is right in our own eyes. And as if that's not bad enough, then the tribe of Dan, a tribe of Israel, is passing through the land. They steal the idols. They even tell Jonathan, wouldn't you rather be the priest over a whole tribe than just one guy's house? And oh, that sounds good. So now they got their priest and their idols that this tribe of Israel is going to worship. And they go and drive some people out of the land. And now they're setting up their own shrines and their own worship to these gods and to these idols. This is a tribe of Israel that is doing this. And it says that they worshiped those idols until the day of their captivity. They just kept worshiping those idols. Peter Kreeft, a philosopher, put it this way. The opposite of theism is not atheism. It's idolatry. The opposite of theism, one God, is not atheism. It's idolatry. And before you say, I don't worship idols, you know, and in your mind, you're already thinking that's what somebody, some tribal group in a third world country that doesn't, you know, maybe have much knowledge would do. You know, I'm not worshiping idols. I'm not doing that. Before you think that, Martin Luther said it this way about that commandment. He said, you can't violate the other nine without breaking this one first. An example of that would be like in Mark chapter 10. Jesus encounters a rich young ruler, and in Mark's gospel, he says that he loved him. Jesus loved this guy. And this guy asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus starts listing the words that were given on Mount Sinai, and he lists five of the six that have to do with how we relate to other people. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Don't commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. What number am I to? The 
rich young ruler says, I've kept all of these. And Jesus says, you lack one thing. It's probably that moment when Jesus gave him a wink because they both knew which one he's talking about, the one he hadn't mentioned yet. Jesus never said, do not covet. He just said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the rich young man went away sad because money was his God. So many things can become an idol in your life. You're going to worship someone. You're going to worship something. In the book, God's at War, Kyle Adaman said that worship is hardwired into who we are. Worship is built in, in human reflex to put your hope in something or someone and then chase after it. You hold something up and then you give your life to pursuing it. And when you begin to align your life with that pursuit, then whether you realize it or not, you're worshiping. So think of it this way. You think you have a greed problem, but what you really have is a worship problem. Will I worship money or will I worship God? You think you have a lust problem, but what you really have is a worship problem. Will you worship sex or will you worship God? You think you have an anger problem, but what you really have is a worship problem. Will you worship yourself or are you going to worship God? You have to choose who you're going to worship. It's a choice that you make. And that's what, that's what Joshua said to those people before he died. In Joshua 24, 14 to 15, he said, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors that they worship beyond the Euphrates River. You remember Abraham was an idolater when God called him. And in Egypt... And serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your ancestors, they serve beyond the Euphrates, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua was saying, you got to choose. You choose who you will serve. And he makes it clear that you're going to worship someone or something. He doesn't go through the list and say, you know, one choice is like, don't worship anything at all. No, you're going to worship someone or something. So choose. He gives a multiple choice. That's not something I normally do at decision time and say, you know what? Hey, one option, you could choose this. I don't start giving the bad options. I normally just give the good one. But Joshua, he's like, hey, yeah, maybe you want to choose. Follow the gods beyond the river. Remember those? Maybe you want to follow the gods in Egypt. Remember those? Maybe you want to follow the gods of the Amorites. It's all around you right here. Do you want to follow them? Go for it. But as for me, I'm choosing to follow the Lord. And that choice is not just a one-time choice. That, 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 that phrase, choose this day whom you'll serve, means choose and continue to choose. It's continual. Every day, we're choosing who we're living for. We're choosing who we're going to serve, who we're going to follow. Because idolatry is not reserved for some tribal group in a third world country. False gods are lined up in every culture. They're in line. Pick one, but make a choice. Who are you going to serve? Just at least acknowledge it, that you are worshiping a God. Are you worshiping the true God? There's five great questions you can ask to call the gods out in your life. These are, this is adapted from a work called The Motivations of Human Behavior. But these same six questions can be great questions to start thinking about. Are there some false gods in your life that are taking the place of the one true God in your life? And I think these are some good questions to ask yourself. Like this one, number one, what disappoints you? If you find yourself really disappointed, well, what were you holding on to? Is it possible that that strong disappointment is revealing a false God in your life? How about this one, number two, where do you make sacrifices? 
The word serve that in Joshua 24 that's used 16 times there can mean sacrifice. It, it, it carries that idea of a sacrifice. What is receiving the most sacrifice from you? Your time, your money, your effort, your energy, your margin, everything you have. Typically, our false gods are well-funded. Number three, what worries you? What worries you? What, what are you anxious about? What are you constantly thinking about? What's going over and over in your head? What's causing that anxiety and stress? Because what worries you could be a false god in your life. Number four, where do you go when you're hurt? Who do you turn to? What do you go to when you're hurt? If you find in those moments that you're going to something else other than God, Henry Blackaby, he defines Idol, as anything you turn to for help when God told you to turn to him for help. That's an idol. So I don't know what you're turning to. Maybe it's food or drink or new possessions or expensive purchases or pornography or something else. What do you turn to when you're hurt? Number five, what do you complain about and get angry about? Because whatever you're complaining about and getting angry about, whatever you feel like you should have that you don't have, whenever you compare... You're never happy and you want this because you don't have this and someone else has it. Maybe material possessions has become your God. And here's the sixth question. Whose applause do you live for? Whose applause do you live for? Is it for your friends or your boss or a friend or a co-worker? Is it for the public opinion about you? Whose opinion matters the most to you? Who are you living for? Who do, whose applause do you seek? Whose opinion matters the most? Do you base how well your day went based on what people are saying about you or to you? Is that how that's coming together? Because when you make yourself king and you do what is right in your own eyes, when you follow your own heart, when you take whatever you see that you desire for yourself, you get the world we live in. You get what we have right here in front of us. And it is a broken and dark place where there is pain and abuse. And so often we want to say, God, why are you doing this? And God is saying, who's doing this? This is what it looks like when people say, God, we got this. And we're going to do it our own way, in our own way, with what's right in our own eyes, not what's right in your eyes. And so today... We will leave this service today and you may get some food and you may get some sustenance and you may be with family. You may have worked. I don't know what you're going to do this afternoon. But at some point, there's a chance you're going to open up some news. And the odds are you're going to be reading about Ukraine. And what we see in Ukraine right now is the effects of someone in this specific case named Putin who does what is right in his own eyes. This is what you do you looks like. And he's not done yet. I mean, this is the, what it looks like when you do what's right in your own eyes. When you don't submit yourself to God Almighty, when you don't do what's right in the Lord's eyes, this is what you get. Missiles hitting civilian homes and maternity hospitals and kindergartens and high schools. This is what it looks like when you follow your own heart. This is what it looks like when you do a you-do-you mentality. So that's what it looks like when you do you. What does it look like when you submit yourself to the Lord? What does it look like when you are committed to the Lord's way and doing what's right in His eyes and not in your, your eyes? 
it looks the exact opposite. It looks like what it looks like right now through the ministry of Proem in Poland. Proem is a Christian ministry in Poland that is sharing the gospel through camps, Christian education, and church planting. That's what this ministry has been doing since like 1990. The map here kind of shows you their location, and you can see that they're actually pretty close to the Ukraine border. This map behind me is the one you can probably see the best. They're, they're not far from the Ukraine border, quite a bit further from Kiev. But they have found themselves positioned as a ministry. A lot of Christian church people are plugged in and involved with this. And they are plugged in to serving right now these refugees that are streaming out of Ukraine. This website kind of shows a screenshot of their website. I'm going to give you the site here in a moment where you could go look at this. But here's what's happening for this church planting camp-based organization that serves thousands of kids every year trying to share the gospel in Poland. But they are now housing refugees from Ukraine. They've had 200 refugees at their church camp right now on 15 acres of land. These families are living in their dorms. They're feeding and clothing them. This includes those at the camp, but also those at the border. The camp has a large kitchen, so they're cooking three meals for them every day. Part of the camp has been turned into a distribution center for donations that's coming in from the people of, of Poland. And so then they're connecting them with their connections in U- the Ukrainian semi-truck drivers that are loading trucks and trying to get them into Ukraine. In fact, last week they made it in, into Kiev with supplies, but that's becoming more and more difficult, obviously. They're transporting those that are at the border, people, women, children, to their next destination. So they own a lot of vans, they own a lot of vehicles, and they're making three to four trips a day, bringing women and children. Of course, they're wanting to be the ones that pick them up so that they're not exposed to those who have evil intentions picking them up. Sex uh, trafficking is a huge concern. So they make their trips. Fuel costs are 40 to 70% higher than the U.S. fuel costs right now. It's usually 30% higher anyway. They're potentially going to be housing orphans from Kiev. And so you, you see what it looks like when people are doing what's right in God's eyes and contrast that with someone who's doing what's right in their own eyes. And there's some ways that we can support and help this. Proministries.org is a place where you can donate. And this is a place where you could, you could do something. If you're like, man, I, you just have that feeling, I want to do something. Well, here's one way to actually do something specifically for people coming in there. And, and when you do something, you need to know this. You know, God uses, he works in things like this. Throughout history, when there's been movements of people from one place to another because of persecution or war or other things, God has been on the move too. Where the love of Jesus is poured out and shown into people's lives and their spiritual awakening and Poland is not a Christian nation by any stretch. Ukraine had a lot more Christians, and here they are coming. I wonder what that's going to mean. But not everybody was a believer, and so it's an opportunity for Christians to care and to love and show Jesus to people. And it's happening. It's, cost, it's costing Proem at least $3,000 a day to house, feed, and transport these refugees. Mac and Olivia Johnson, these are Ozark Christian College grads that are in Poland right now serving alongside this ministry. This would be Gingy Steele's granddaughter that, that a lot of you would know. And so she's a part of this ministry. 
I know that our Easter offering this year, we have a huge goal because we want to impact four continents this year with some projects you're going to start hearing about, big initiatives that are going on. And so our Easter offering goal this year is $24,000. That is our, our goal for that. So we have a big goal already. But we are also talking as a church about how can we support and help a ministry like this. Uh, Garrett Holly and our staff team did a Zoom call with the director, U.S. director, about this ministry this week to help us with some of the information to know ways that we can support. So we're, we're going to be looking into this more. But what you see is, is a stark contrast between what it looks like, between people who are committed to doing what is right in God's eyes and people who want, just want to do what's right in their own. And if you're going to do what is right in God's eyes, you got some questions you got to ask yourself like, like will, will you trust God? Will you trust what God says even if you don't understand why? Will you trust what God says even if you don't agree with Him? Will you trust Him in those moments when you don't understand what's happening or why it's happening? Are you going to see and desire something and take it for yourself because it's what's right in your own eyes? Or are you going to submit it to the Lord and say, God, I want to do what's right in your eyes? God has looked down the corridor of time and he sees things that we have not yet seen and he sees the fallout and the brokenness of our pain. And he offers us this invitation just as Jesus is offering us this invitation today to trust him, trust him. And though it may not feel like it in the moment, trusting Jesus always works out for the best. Trusting God will always lead to blessings in your life. Even if you don't see it in the short term in that moment. Even if you don't understand why and it looks confusing in that moment. Doing what is right in your own eyes is an idolatry problem. It's setting yourself up against God. Kyle Eidemann in God's at War, he says, idolatry. Idolatry isn't just one of many sins. Rather, it's the one great sin that all the others come from. In fact, if you start scratching at whatever struggle you're dealing with right now, eventually what you'll probably find deep down underneath is a false God. Idolatry isn't an issue. It's the issue. So today we have to make a declaration. We got to make a declaration that God is not one among many. He's the one and only. He's exclusive. He's above all other gods. None of those gods work. None of them have power. None of them can do anything. So today is a declaration. Christ, be magnified in me. This is a prayer for us. A prayer that he be magnified in us. It's a declaration. I won't bow down to idols. I will not bow down to idols. I'm going to stand and I'm going to worship him. No matter where it puts me. If it puts me in the fire, I'll rejoice because you're there. You're with me. I'm not going to let anything else fashion me or form me or make me who I am. I am submitting myself to the Lord so that I may do what is right in his eyes. Yes, the weapon of culture is proximity. But you realize God uses the same weapon. Because when his people come in proximity with a broken and dark world, we become salt.
we become light. People who are committed to the Lord, we begin to see that we begin to make a difference in the power of Christ in us. Not where we become like the culture, but where the culture is transformed by the power of Jesus. And that is our prayer today as the church. That we won't descend into the darkness of degradation like we see in Judges, but instead we lift our eyes to our help from which it comes from. Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He's the almighty God we serve and we worship. And so today I just want you to know right now, I want to give you a chance to respond. In fact, if you stand to your feet right now, this will be part of our declaration today that God, we are submitting to you. We're surrendering to you. We commit to you. We will do what's right in your eyes. We want to proclaim this. We want to sing this. We want to ask God for the strength to do this. And if today you want to make a decision to follow Jesus, you want to make a decision to begin a relationship with him, you want to make a decision to turn away from yourself, to turn to the Lord, we want to give you a chance to do that. You can meet me right over here at Decision Point. I'd love to meet you right through those doors. If you're watching online, go to northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision to do it. Right now, church, we just want to, we want to be the church. We want to be who God wants us to be. Maybe today uh, you haven't yet given to the Lord, given to him first. And I want you to know that that kind of support is used not only to change lives here, but around the world. And so you can go to northsidechristianchurch.net. You can text to give like you see on the screen. Or you can drop an offering in the boxes at the room as you leave. Let's let this be a moment when we surrender ourselves to the Lord. He is God. He is God. I'll meet you right over here. Thanks for joining us this morning, Northside. Before you go, make sure you check in and let us know you were here. Text the word CHECK to 417-233-1200. If you want to respond to today's service, you can do that online through Decision Point. If you want to know more about baptism or becoming a member, you can request more info at northsidechristianchurch.net slash decision. This is also the place to find out about our life groups, find out what sort of service opportunities there are, or if you just need to get in touch with a minister. And if you're online, you probably use social media too. Make sure you're following along with Northside on our Facebook page, Instagram account, YouTube channel, or Twitter. We are glad that you chose to join us this morning. As we head out for the week, let's make sure we take the love of God with us. Take good care of each other, Northside.